I do want to encourage you not to give up. And if you have stopped, it's a good time to jump back in. Uh, and you can, you can do it different ways. You can forget what you've not done and try to do it next year. That would be fine. Or you can start where we are and start reading with us and go back and read just every day. Read three or four chapters of what you missed and you'll gradually get caught up. So I don't know which, uh, which path you want to take. Some of you are caught up on your reading, I'm sure. Uh, we are in, you know, a part of the Old Testament that there, there are some confusing things. It's a historical part, so if you like history, this is, well, except for the genealogies of First Chronicles that we're in, that's not a whole lot of fun. But if you can get yourself, you know, past the genealogies in First Chronicles, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get historical again, and so I hope you'll stick with it, and you're probably not the ones I need to be talking to, probably need to talk more about it on Sunday morning as well to encourage uh, some of our other folks, and, and, and I don't know where anybody is when you're reading, I don't, don't want to know necessarily, but I do want to encourage, you know, we're, we're in a spot now where the newness is worn off, we're in the fourth month of the year, we do a lot of things for January and February, and then March it starts getting a little more difficult, and then April we start fading, and then going to summer, you know, I know how it goes, I know how I work as well, so um, I just don't want us to lose heart and lose encouragement for making the commitment to read through the Bible this year. Uh, we're doing some jumping around. If you're following the plan, you've noticed that. It's not, now, now it's getting to a point, really, where it's, it's in the next couple weeks especially, we're going to be jumping from 2 Samuel to 1 Chronicles to the Psalms, and then we'll be going into 1 Kings still in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. So I'm going to try to help you tonight. If you don't understand why that is, I want to try to help you to understand kind of what, what's going on. So the last time that we got together, we actually talked about finishing up the Pentateuch. That's how long it's been, which is Deuteronomy. You know, we talked about, we looked back on Deuteronomy, and I introduced to you, I think, the teaching of the book of Judges, or at least we looked ahead to Judges. And then over the couple of Sunday mornings, you may remember, we did one, not, not Judges, I skipped Joshua. We, um, I introduced you to the book of Joshua. So on a couple of Sunday mornings, I preached some sermons. One from Joshua, if you remember that about Jericho. And then I preached one from Judges on the last three chapters. Every, no, you know, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. To help us stay on track with their thinking about the Old Testament. So what we've covered so far in our reading... So we've done some psalms, I know, but as far as the rest of it, we've covered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'm talking about it in our reading. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. We're in Second Samuel. Skipping over First and Second Kings, we're doing a little bit of First Chronicles now in our reading, and we sprinkle a lot of psalms in there. So let's talk about where we are. It's just kind of make sure we understand the story and what's going on, where this narrative is. And, uh, and where it's going toward, and, and I hope it'll be helpful to you. We're going to, near the end of this, we're going to watch a short video on the Psalms, because we're doing a lot of Psalm reading, and a lot of that's coming up, and you'll be reading quite a few Psalms, jumping around based on which part of the history that you're reading in Second Samuel or First Chronicles. A lot of David Psalms we'll be reading over the next couple of weeks. So we're going to watch one of those Bible Project videos for about uh, eight or nine minutes near the end of this to get us thinking about Psalms in a good way, I think. And, um, and then we'll, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll come back and reflect on this again. So, just a quick recap. You may not need this, but a quick recap of what's going on. You know, uh, 
after, after God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, which is one of the pivotal chapters of the Bible, we talked about it a couple months back, Genesis 12, God made this promise to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant, big deal, confirmed by the, uh, by the act of circumcision that God gave to the people. This promise was that God's going to establish a nation, He's going to give them a land, and He's going to make Abraham and his people a blessing to all the nations. Remember that? Those three promises. A great nation, that's the nation of... What? What nation did he establish through Abraham? Nation of Israel, right? Yeah. Nation of Israel. Going to give you a land, and that is the land of... Land of Canaan. And ultimately, looking way down in history, he, through this nation, he's going to bring someone into the world to be a blessing to all the nations, not just Israel. And who is that person? All right, that's Jesus. So those three promises are given to Abraham in Genesis 12. That is one of the pivotal chapters of the Bible. We'll talk about another one tonight. You'll actually read it a week from Tuesday. Uh, so nine days from now, you'll read one of the other pivotal covenant chapters of the Bible. We've already read a couple of them. We read about the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, confirmed in Genesis 17. We read about the covenant God made with, well, pr prior to that, Noah. In Genesis 9, the covenant God made, the rainbow, the sign of the covenant was the rainbow. Um, and then in Exodus, through Deuteronomy, we read, read about the covenant that God made with Moses that was given through the law, right? And so Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy tell us about this law of Moses, this covenant God made with Moses. And historically what happened there is God is creating this nation. They've developed into a people of two or three million strong, but they're slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God. God sends them to deliver Moses. This is in Exodus. And through those ten plagues, God delivers them from Egyptian captivity across the Red Sea, takes them to the wilderness and to the Mount, Mount Sinai, gives them the law. And that's what Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy are about that law. And are they going to keep the covenant? Are they going to be faithful to the covenant? Now, if you had to answer that yes or no, when you look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, was Israel faithful to the covenant or not? Were they faithful to the covenant? No, they were not very faithful to the covenant. As a result of that, that generation wandered around the wilderness for a total of 40 years until the new generation had grown up. And then God, through Moses, spoke it again to them in the book of Deuteronomy. And that's why Deuteronomy is the second law, or the second giving of the law. So that's what Deuteronomy was about. Now then, Deuteronomy was given through Moses right before they crossed over. At the end of Deuteronomy, you remember, Moses died, and he handed the baton of leadership over to Joshua. And so the next book is Joshua. Joshua leads the people in, and we studied the story of Jericho. That was the first city they came to. And uh, through Joshua... They conquered the land, Jericho, Ai, and these, all, these, all these places. But they get to the end of it. There's, it's kind of a mixed bag. Did you notice that reading Joshua? And this is something we haven't talked about in class, but it's kind of a mixed bag in Joshua because you, sometimes you get, the impression, you get the impression that they're doing exactly what they need to be doing, that things are going well, they're taking the land and all that. And, and, and that to an extent, that's true, but... You also get some hints in there that you'll see or have seen later on that they didn't fully drive out the people of the land. They, they left some in there. And that becomes a problem, especially in the book of Judges, you know. So at the end of Joshua, Joshua issues that final charge. He says, 
uh, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. The God of your fathers on the other side of the Euphrates. Uh, that's the God, the pagan gods of Abraham, his family, I mean, of Abraham's extended family over there, those folks. Um, the gods of the Canaanites in whose land we dwell. Or are you going to serve the God of heaven? Choose you this day whom you'll serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's at the end of Joshua. So that's that commission that Joshua gives them. And then you go into the book of Judges. And so they're in the land. How, how do things go in the book of Judges? Y'all remember? Yeah. It's a rough book, man. It's a rough book. Those last three chapters, there's no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. That's the whole book of Judges. There are no heroes in the book of Judges. I mentioned that in the sermon I preached on it. Uh, you got a couple of couple of candidates. Samson's not one of them. <laughs> you know, Samson's not one of our heroes. Uh, Gideon's not one of our heroes. Fun stories to read in some ways, um, but not really heroes. Othniel was a, was a pretty good guy. Uh, anyway, ju- judges is what happens when people don't keep a covenant. That's what Deuteronomy said. If you remember Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy said basically, if you keep the covenant, I will bless you. If you don't keep the covenant, things will go poorly for you. And, and Judges is a living example. It's, it's, a, it's a, a storied example, an example in stories of what happens when you don't keep the covenant. And when you don't keep the covenant, uh, it, it's bad. And the culmination of that in Judges 19, 20, and 21, the story of, of, of rape, of mass slaughter, of the degradation of women, of sexual confusion, rampant violence. It's just all all sorts of bad things. That's what happens when there's no king in Israel, right? So that's the book of of Judges. Ruth is a story of God's faithfulness in the presence of all this chaos, in the presence of all this ungodliness. Is God still faithful to the covenant? Is God still active? Even though God's not mentioned much in the book of Ruth, um, the story of Ruth is one of, one of uh, you know, the story of this Moabite, Moabitess, this Moabite woman who was brought in. And even though she experienced a lot of loss, God is working there to bring Ruth into this family. She marries Boaz and becomes an ancestress of King David. And that little story there in Ruth, it, it connects Judges with 1 Samuel because it shows us that in the midst of this moral chaos and this anarchy, God is still working among His people to bring about the resolution of His promises, the keeping of His promises. So that story of Ruth is a beautiful one, but it points to the faithfulness of God. And uh, So you go from, go from Ruth to 1 and 2 Samuel. Let's talk about that for, for a minute. 1 and 2 Samuel. There are... Well, you, you get to the end of Judges. Let me go back there for a second. You get to the end of Judges. There's no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Um, it's a bad thing. It's a, it's a bad situation. Not necessarily that there was no king, an earthly king. They didn't need an earthly king. Well, they, they probably did in their sinfulness need an earthly king. But in, in an idyllic world, they didn't need an earthly king. Um, but there's moral chaos. So... What is God going to do? How does the story move forward? Well, the way it moves forward is that God tells at the beginning of 1 Samuel the story of his faithfulness to another woman. You've got the story of Ruth and Ruth. You've got the story of Hannah in the first couple of chapters of 1 Samuel. Remember the story of Hannah? Couldn't have a child, prayed for a child. God gave her 
a little boy, and she named him Samuel and gave him to God. She gave him to God. So the story of 1 Samuel, as the story moves on, you've got three main characters of Samuel. Of first of Samuel. By the way, Samuel was originally one book, as was Kings, as was the book of Chronicles. So they were divided into two because of scroll length. So um, you see that happen sometimes with huge books, even today. You know, you don't want to put too many pages in a book lest it become un unwieldy, and uh, that's what they did with the scrolls. So Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, three books broken down into two each because of scroll scroll length. So we talk about Samuel. We're in the middle of Samuel in our reading. And we're also in the middle of Chronicles, and I'll talk to you about why that is the case. Um, so, First Samuel, you've got three main characters. You can probably guess who they are if you've read it. Pay close attention to what you're reading. You've got Samuel, who appoints the first king, who was Saul. Saul doesn't work out too well, so he appoints the next king, who is David. All right, so, three main characters. The story really centers around those. You've got other ones. You've got Eli. You've got other ones mixed in there. But that's the, that's the main story. You can follow the storyline along those three guys. Samuel is God's prophet, and he's a judge, he's a priest. He appoints, he appoints David. The people, people, not David, he, he appoints Saul initially. The people want a king. They want to be like everybody else. And it's this an ongoing mentality that they struggle with. They're in the land of Canaan. They want to be Canaanites, essentially. And so God responds. He says to Samuel, don't get upset about it. Just go ahead and give them what they want. They get exactly what they want. Uh, they get a good-looking king. He's tall, got broad shoulders. He knows how to lead an army. And it uh, works out great for a minute. And then it doesn't work out great because he's exactly what they wanted. What they, a sinful people, what they wanted, God gave them. Saul has bad character flaws, and things don't go well at all with Saul. You know, initially, he's got some initial victories, but very quickly things reflect his character. And he disobeys God on two really significant occasions, and God says, okay, you know, you're unfaithful, and I'm not going to let you rule the people. And so through Samuel, he raises up, he appoints another king, and he had seen the character in this young man whose name was David. <coughs> and so God used Samuel to appoint David, even while he was young. And God looked down and found him to be a man after his own heart and anticipated what he would do as king. And he's appointed in, he becomes king and actually king over a unified nation in 2 Samuel. But the rest of 1 Samuel, you remember how this goes. So you got Samuel, you got Saul. It's, if you watch the Bible Project video on this, if any of you are doing that, you'll, they'll, they'll put it as a trajectory and it's pretty accurate. This first part of 1 Samuel is about Saul's rise and then his precipitous fall based on two acts of major acts of disobedience, lack of confidence in God. Um, Second Samuel is going to follow a similar trajectory with David. David's rise and then what, what key event happens that leads to his downfall? Bathsheba. I can't remember when we read that. Is it maybe this week? Maybe the week after? I can't remember when Second Samuel 11 is. But it's, uh, no, it, it wouldn't be this week. It would be probably it'd be next week because I know we do Second Samuel 7 in, in a little over a week. So we'll get to that in a couple weeks. Uh, I think before we get to our next discussion class, you'll read that. That's just when you read that, man, that's at the height. First, first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, David's being blessed. I'm going to talk about one of those chapters in a second for a minute. 
everything's good. You know, David is doing great. And then, you know, stuff happens. Okay, so why do we have, <clears throat> why in our reading are we doing Samuel? Well, we read all of 1 Samuel, and then we start reading 2 Samuel. And so two things. Why do we start reading 1 Chronicles in the middle of that? And why do we start reading the Psalms? Second one's probably clear, you know, maybe both of them are clear to you, but second one's especially easy to answer. And that is because many of these Psalms are written by David. And so as we read through the story of David, we're going to read some of the Psalms that David wrote. And of the ones that aren't written by David, they're written about something that happened <clears throat> during David's time. So do you remember, um, do you remember, some of you were in the class. We taught a class here on Wednesday night. How long has that been? A couple of years ago about David and about um, David running from Saul. Remember those stories in 1 Samuel? Well, David wrote more of his psalms during that time than at any other time in his life. And, and so that's, if, you, if you notice that connection when you're reading 1 Samuel, you're reading some of those psalms. Those are psalms he wrote from some of those caves, the cave of En Gedi, and uh, some of those caves where he was hiding in there and saws out there chasing him, wanting him dead, you know. David wrote some psalms, and so we've read those. So hope you'll notice through this, this is supposed to be a chronological reading. It's not going to be perfect because you don't know about some stuff, where it fits exactly. But as you, as you read a psalm over the next couple weeks, however long the psalms go on, just ask yourself, why am I reading this today? Try to make the connection to what historical book you've just read or maybe a chapter that you read today or the previous day or whatever. Um, Yes. Yes, sir. That's all right. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. She would be, <clears throat> she would be probably, <clears throat> uh, she'd be one of the leaders for heroes or heroines in the book of Judges. She and Othniel, yeah. Uh, so I, I agree with that. I think Deborah was used by God as a prophetess, as you said, and as a deliverer. 
Um, so a great story there with Deborah. As your previous point, I agree completely again. They, they did reject God or Jesus as king, and it is an example of what happens, you know, when, when people don't submit to the kingship of, of the Lord Christ, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, so good points. I appreciate it. Um, okay, so when you are reading, when we're reading the other question we had, Psalms are written during historical times, and, and when they can figure them out, they'll, they'll place them at the right place. They can, all right? So just think about that. Second thing is, why we jump ahead of 1 Chronicles? And you already know this. It, I guess it's not too hard to figure out if you read carefully. But in our rush to get our reading done, we may not see some of the connections. So in the Hebrew Bible, just quick, in the Hebrew Bible, and by that I mean like the Jewish Bible, First and Second Chronicles are, are, are the last books in the, in the Bible. They're, they're the last books. And they are meant to be a summary of the entire Old Testament story. The first person mentioned in First Chronicles is Adam. And the last thing that happens in Second Chronicles is the, the edict of Cyrus to go back and rebuild the temple, which happened in the 400s. Yeah, the 400s. So, you've got a little bit in the little bit in, in uh, what we call the prophets that would occur after that because they do rebuild the temple through Zerubbabel. But First and Second Chronicles are meant to tell the story, the whole story from Adam to the rebuilding of the temple. And, and, and that was the end of the Hebrew Bible. Okay? So what you've got in Samuel and Kings, you've got a continuous narrative. So if you were to read this First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings then you would read a continuous narrative. And that's the way, you know, we, we will read those books. We just won't read them necessarily all together. Because what First, First and Second Chronicles do is they go back and overlap with Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. You with me? So as we read First and Second, well, as we read Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, we're going to read First and Second Chronicles along beside that. Or, yeah, especially First Chronicles, along beside that, because it's covering the same period of history from a later perspective. Chronicles, the Chronicles, were written a lot later. They were written after the exile, after the return. Or at least they were the final touches were put on them then. So they were written later. And so if you were to line this up, you're going to have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then under Second Samuel, you're going to have First Chronicles, and then Second Chronicles is going to cover some of um, First and Second Kings. So that's why that's going to happen. So just notice that you're reading two, it's like Matthew and Mark, you know. You don't, you don't um, read from Matthew 28 to Mark 1 and continue the story. You go back to Mark 1 and read Mark's perspective on what happened with Luke, John. You've got that with First and Second Chronicles. That's important or it'll, it'll get confusing. It may have already gotten confusing, but... Uh, It'll get confusing. So it starts with the genealogies because it wants us to connect the story all the way back to Adam and show us how it connects to the, to the end, to what God is doing. Okay, so I want to... Well, where to get away from that sun? I guess over here. Um, all right, so one, one quick thing. Since we're going to be reading this in nine days, I want to mention 2 Samuel to you, 2 Samuel 7. And this is another one of those chapters. I mentioned like the promise, the covenant God made with Noah in Genesis 9, confirmed by the rainbow. Uh, the covenant he made with Abraham, confirmed by circumcision. The covenant he made with Moses, that was given through the law. 
2 Samuel 7 is another one of those pivotal chapters in the Bible where God makes a covenant with David. You remember David, I think we've read this yet, where I guess we don't read it until next week, but David wants to build a temple for God, right? He wants to build a house for God. Now, when you get there next Tuesday, or whenever you get there, notice this play on words. I think the word house, the Hebrew word for house is used like 13 times in 2 Samuel 7, I think. It's a word that means house, like a house you live in or whatever. But it, sometimes it's used metaphorically. And we use the word house maybe not as much as they did, but we sometimes use it in a symbolic or metaphorical way as well. So it's used about 13 times. David says, God, I want to build you a house. God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. You're a man of war, a man of bloodshed, whatever. You're not going to do it. But he says, I'm going to build you a house. And so David wants to build God a literal house. God says, no, you're not going to do that. I'm going to build you a house, not a literal house, but I'm going to build you, we might say, a dynasty. Or we're going to, God's, God says, I'm going to establish your lineage. And so your son is going to, he's going to be king. Your grandson's going to be king. Your great-grandson's going to be king. But, notice this, if you read this in view of the New Testament, you read it in view of verses like Hebrews 1.5, you are my son, this day have I begotten you, uh, which is a reflection on 2 Samuel 7. Just notice this, I just want to put this in your mind so that it'll, it'll come out when you get there. Notice the messianic hints of 2 Samuel 7, that God is not talking ultimately about Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijah and so on, these kings. He's talking about the king who would ultimately come and establish David's throne forever. And so Jesus is called the son of David, right? And the son of God. You are my son this day I have begotten you. So 2 Samuel 7 is going to become one of those pivotal chapters we'll refer back to. And it's, it's important because of... When we get to the prophets, for example, they refer back to 2 Samuel a lot. It's a big deal. So don't rush through that chapter. Uh, don't just check it off your box. Kind of spend a little time with 2 Samuel 7. And so as we move into, you know, first and let's see, first Chronicles, and we'll be reading a lot of Psalms. Hopefully this will tie some of this together. I know this is much too much, it's much too short of a time to cover some of this. I want us to I want us to watch this short video, last about eight minutes, and um, it's about Psalms. Uh, I like, they've got a, several more videos on the Psalms. This is, this is one of them, because I want you to, there's, there's, there's rich material in Psalms, and I want, you to, I, want you to get, I want you to get it and see how it breaks down so that as you read through this, it might be helpful to you. So we're going to watch that now, and then I'll get back up just for, I'll have about a minute or two, and we'll, we'll be done. All right? Well done. The Book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73, actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the Book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. 
At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2 which stand outside of book one because most of the poems in book one are linked to David, except Psalms one and two, which are anonymous. Psalm one celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here actually the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now, Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the Messianic King will be blessed, precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future Messianic Kingdom. Now, with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the messianic kingdom. Then book two closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the messianic king over all of the nations. 
This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David, but now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world. And that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all of the world. Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hallel and the other called the Songs of Ascent. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combined all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song, 1 Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally, too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound, and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. 
And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. That's what the book of Psalms is all about. Okay, so we'll finish, we'll finish with that. Uh, a, couple, just a couple of quick things. One is the way we're reading the book of Psalms this year, you don't, you don't get that because we're not reading it from beginning to end. So, so that's one thing to think about. You may consider maybe, maybe next year uh, you may think about just reading Psalms straight through over a period of a few days, you know, because you, you won't see what they were talking about. Um, they brought out a lot of neat things, and I love that's the thing that I'm trying to do with these videos for you guys. I, I wish we could watch, obviously we're not going to watch even a small portion of them. I wish you'd watch them all. I love the way they tie things together and they show how the different parts of the Bible relate to one another and how it is one. In fact, they say this in their, the way they do it. They, they say this themselves. They're intentional about showing the Bible as one continuous narrative, which I think is, is just crucial for us to see how it all fits together. So they do a great job of that. Uh, uh, and I rarely find something that I have a you know, huge disagreement with, though there are a, a few places that might happen. So it's good stuff. Hope you'll think about it and, and maybe watch some more of these on your own. Uh, all right, thanks, thanks for being here. Thanks for your attention. Let's close with a prayer, all right? Lord, you've been so good to us. And uh, like the psalmist, we, we, uh, we do sometimes lament because we, we see our own wickedness, we see the wickedness of the world, and we see things that are bad that seem to go unpunished, and we wonder, and we question, and we, we lament, Lord, but help the traje trajectory of our lives and of our prayers to be toward praise, and help us to understand that you are active in the world, just as you were active in the middle of the moral chaos through Ruth. And, and Hannah, and bringing up Samuel to anoint David. Help us to see, Lord, your hand and your, your faithfulness in bringing all things to that final end at the great resurrection. We trust in you, Lord. Help us to trust more deeply. Bless us the upcoming week. Help us to live out what we believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much.